Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the presenters for Dragon Bites and one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales. This week we have the second half of our episodes on aortic stenosis for you. I was joined a few weeks ago by Professor Orhan Uzun, fetal cardiologist at the University Hospital of Wales, where we discussed aortic stenosis. In this week's episode, we discuss investigations for aortic stenosis and how to manage it. Anyway, let's get started. And you made the diagnosis before you consider doing ECG, chest x-ray and echocardiogram. Let's talk about those traditional investigations. Would ECG show any abnormality or chest x-ray show any abnormality in these patients? Or could the ECG show the um, left ventricular hypertrophy that might have occurred? Correct. But if aortic stenosis is mild, you would have absolutely no ECG abnormality. If it is moderate in severity, you may still not have any pathology whatsoever. And only severe aortic stenosis or moderately severe aortic stenosis would show LV hypertrophy. And LV hypertrophy is very difficult to detect on ECG in children. And the voltage criteria is poor um, sign and is poorly correlated with the degree of obstruction in children. It's more reliable in adults. So ECG may be entirely normal, but one abnormality would warn you and would be more reliable than voltage criteria, which is ST segment sagging or ST segment depression or T-wave inversion. And ST changes is the sign of subendocardial ischemia. And that is seen in children who have symptoms of shortness of breath, exercise intolerance, and syncope. When you exercise these patients on a treadmill, you can bring on ST segment depression. Sometime at rest, it may be very subtle. So LV hypertrophy is the first thing we think straight away. But from my experience, LV hypertrophy cannot be diagnosed reliably on the basis of voltage criteria, unless it is severe aortic stenosis. If the left atrium is enlarged because LV and diastolic pressure is high, then you may you may see P mitrale, which are P waves, biphasic P waves with humps on them. But it is usually seen in older population than in childhood. So I would put emphasis on ST segment sagging or ST segment depression or T-wave inversion. Voltage criteria is less reliable in children and sometimes not prominent LV forces, but you may see significantly diminished ventricular forces in V1 and V2. So you see it in pressure-loaded ventricles. In severe hypertrophy, you may see deep S-waves and diminished RV forces in V1 and V2. So it might be more reliable than increased forces on the left side. Of course, in uh, critical aortic stenosis and in newborn babies, this would be the other way around. You would see dominant RV forces because right ventricle is prominent in these patients. If there is critical aortic stenosis but good forward flow, then these babies, newborn babies, present with LV and RV forces because LV as well as RV would be hypertrophied or dilated. Dilatation predominates in neonates, newborns. If there is forward flow across the 
stenotic aortic valve. If there is very little forward flow or no forward flow in these babies, right ventricle would be dominant, left ventricle would be small and hypertrophied, and therefore RV forces would be more prominent. So you have to have some flexibility in thinking how you should interpret QRS height or deep S waves or ST segment depression in infants versus older children. Let's go to chest X-ray. Chest X-ray, the heart size, except in small infants who may have congestive heart failure, chest would not show any sign of big heart. But if the infant has congestive heart failure as a result of poor cardiac output or dilated left ventricle in critical aortic stenosis, then chest would show, chest X-ray would show large heart shadow. And the other thing you may see, because of post-stenotic dilatation, ascending aorta may be more prominent and visible on the upper border, right-sided border of the, of the heart. So mainly, chest x-ray is not that helpful, but may offer a little help in infants with, with um, congestive heart failure to differentiate whether it is due to congestion in the lungs as a result of left-right shunt or due to pulmonary venous congestion as a result of increased LA-LV pressure transmitted backwards into the lungs. And of course, the next stage would be to call cardiologists to perform an echocardiogram. An echocardiogram would help identify in mobility, number and thickening of aortic leaflets, size of the ascending aorta, and size of subvalve area, presence of tunneled subaortic stenosis or fibromuscular membrane, and the site of obstruction. Sometimes these babies or these children might have multiple level obstruction, subaortic as well as valva obstruction, would again identify whether it is bicuspid aortic valve or not. Echocardiogram would, uh, would demonstrate either ventricular uh, hypertrophy, would also help assess ventricular function, rule out the presence of additional lesions like VSD, mitral valve pathology, because some of these patients may have Schoen complex. So um, in a Schoen complex, what, what else is going wrong? Aortic stenosis, if it is associated with mitral stenosis and coarctation, we call this Schoen complex. Oh, I see. Which translates into a um, worst case scenario, and these patients do perform poorly in the long run, and the long-term outlook would be quite guarded in patients with isolated aortic stenosis versus Schoen complex. So echocardiogram also would tell us how severe the narrowing is by doing Doppler assessment of the left ventricular outflow, and we can quantify the pressure drop across the narrow aortic valve or LV outflow tract. We can also quantify the regurgitation if there is any to give prognostic information to the family. If echocardiogram helped us classify aortic stenosis into mild, moderate, severe, then we may do further tests such as treadmill stress testing to show whether these patients will be prone to have angina syncope by showing ST segment depression or T-wave inversion. And if there is no ST segment depression or T-wave abnormalities, then the outcome would be positive. And if there are such changes on exertion, on treadmill, 
then you would be leaning towards early surgery than following these patients. And stress test is important and very valuable in terms of identifying significant obstruction and deciding on the next point of action. Stress test, if it revealed significant aortic stenosis, then the treatment needs to be tailored according to patient's age and valve pathology and the severity. Cardiac catheterization is most commonly undertaken compared to surgery if the obstruction is at the valva level. If the obstruction at supravalva or subvalva, we do not perform cardiac catheterization and we require surgery. Valvar obstruction has to be severe and pressure gradient across abnormal aortic valve should be 60 millimeter of mercury when the child is awake. Then we put a balloon across the abnormal valve and stretch it. And each stretching, of course, results in some damage to the aortic valve and inevitably causes leakage. An aortic regurgitation is almost always produced by this procedure and degree of aortic regurgitation, not the stenosis, determines when the next procedure or surgery needs to be done. If there is minimal aortic regurgitation, then repeat dilatation can be attempted if the stenosis gets worse. But if the regurgitation is moderate severity, that tends to get worse and necessitates surgery and precludes any further balloon dilatation. If the child doesn't have any ST segment abnormalities and the narrowing is moderate and you can afford to wait and delay surgery as long as possible. If there is no regurgitation, even in older children, balloon dilatation is attempted. If aortic valve is bicuspid, it may be difficult to tear the valve between commissures and it might lead to deterioration of aortic regurgitation and earlier surgery may be needed in these patients. If you can delay aortic valve surgery beyond infancy, certainly beyond neonatal period, then there is a good chance for this baby to have reasonable quality of life. They may have ROS operation where you use patient's own pulmonary artery and dissect it off from the right ventricle with the valves and implant it on the left side and make the pulmonary artery now neo-aorta. So patient's old pulmonary artery will be put into aortic position and for the pulmonary artery position, a conduit from a donor will be used as a new pulmonary artery. And that conduit is not a life structure, therefore will require replacement every three to five years. And once the child is over 16 and reaches adult size, then the replacement may not be required so often and may be dependent on the person's immunological response or inflammatory response or endothelial proliferation and destruction of the conduit by calcification. And those adults tend to have replacement of conduit between every 10 to 30 years. So ROS procedure is procedure of choice in small children rather than prosthetic valve. In uh, older children, prosthetic valve replacement may be preferred uh, in selected cases, but in pregnant, in, in women and productive age, ROS procedure is pre preferred procedure 
rather than using prosthetic valve to avoid use of warfarin in these female patients. If the person is uh, older, adult age, after fifth, sixth decade, then prosthetic valve replacement is preferred, not the ROS procedure. ROS procedure is procedure of choice in young children and young adults, as well as in females in productive age. Once surgery is done, patient can go back to their activities and the exercise restrictions can be lifted. But if there is mild or moderate aortic stenosis, you don't need to do severe exercise restrictions. But if the narrowing goes beyond moderate, moderately severe and severe obstructions, then we will have to advise patients to abstain from certain exercise activities, which will increase blood pressure, particularly essential blood pressure inside the ventricle and within the aorta, such as rugby or weightlifting, heavy weightlifting, heavy weightlifting, particularly dangerous in these patients, or activities like squash or rugby involving sudden stop and sudden start. Sudden increase in blood pressure is not good for these patients, which may result in aortic dilatation and rupture. Again, cross-country running should not be advised in these patients or unsupervised activities in severe aortic stenosis. That child might need urgent attention and there may not be anybody attending to child's need. Post-surgery, as I said, the activities can be resumed if there is no significant residual narrowing. And uh, in fact, some famous sports person or celebrity has gone back to their activities following ROS procedure. So in children, we also relax the rules and allow them enjoy healthy interaction with their peers in any supportive activity. Most important thing is to avoid sudden impact on the chest um, in sports like karate, judo, and rugby in the first six months of life. And beyond six months, those impact sports also can, can be undertaken. So we delay such vigorous activities until six months have elapsed after surgery. In terms of medication, sometime um, to delay surgery in these patients, we may consider treatment, especially in patients with subvalvular obstruction, where the obstruction relating to muscle rather than anything else. In those patients, we may put them on beta blocker to reduce cardiac vigorous contractility. However, one need to be careful not to reduce blood pressure too much, which may compromise cardiac output. Again, in patients with mixed aortic valve disease, what I mean uh, with mixed valve disease, combination of aortic stenosis and regurgitation, but regurgitation is the predominant lesion here. We might put them on ACE inhibitors in the hope of reducing afterload so that the ventricle can pump blood more effectively forward into the aorta and hence less blood can come back to the ventricle. But the effect of ACE inhibitors is not 100% and the long-term benefit is debated. So medical treatment is limited in these patients. However, some recent studies suggesting that in moderate aortic stenosis, use of beta blockers may be helpful in slowing down progression of aortic stenosis. And use of beta blockers, again, and ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers may be helpful in patients if they have aortic root dilatation in the context of bicuspid aortic valve or 
aortic regurgitation to prevent aortic aneurysms and rupture. So those are the limited um, use of medications in aortic outflow obstructions. So long-term outlook after balloon dilatation, survival is close to 95%. If balloon dilatation is performed beyond first year of age, beyond infancy, survival is close to 75%. If the balloon dilatation is performed below one year of age, the need for further intervention, again, is more likely if you had the procedure done before one year of age and by three years of age, two, three years of age, half of these babies would require further intervention, either balloon or surgery, if the procedure is done, is performed less than one year of age. And 50% is quite a big number and 75% would need further intervention by age six and about 90% would need, would need intervention by the end of childhood, sort of 15, 16 years of age. 75% would need further intervention or surgery if they needed operation or procedure in infancy. If the procedure was needed beyond infancy, then 50% would need surgery or repeat procedure in teenage years. So up until teenage years, small numbers may, may, may require repeat procedure or operation, but half of them would need intervention in late teenage years. This is with the, um, with the balloon dilatation. If surgery is needed for the valve, as I said, depends on the person's inflammatory response or endothelial proliferation or calcification or the conduit itself um, may degrade very quickly and the conduit might need to be replaced in childhood more frequently between three and six years, in adulthood between 10 and 30 years. And the prosthetic valve again may never need replacing in adulthood if it doesn't get clotted, if, if it doesn't get any obstruction. But in childhood, the valve itself wouldn't grow, prosthetic valve, and would need replacing as the child grows bigger. The valve would be relatively small. So at least one, if not two operations would be needed to replace the prosthetic valve in childhood if the procedure is performed in infancy. But in adulthood, as I said, replacement of prosthetic valve would be needed less commonly. If the narrowing is at the subvalvar region underneath the aortic valve without any valve involvement, those leaflets um, maybe sometime be pulled down by the fibromuscular membrane and aortic regurgitation may, may ensue in subaortic stenosis. When aortic stenosis becomes obvious, or the narrowing becomes moderately severe with a mean pressure gradient goes over 40 millimeter of mercury, then we resect the membrane, shave it off. One caveat to it is that subaortic stenosis tend to recur and the fibromuscular membrane might grow back and children might need repeat operation. The recurrence rate is about 25%. If it is supravalve aortic stenosis and Williams syndrome has to be borne in mind. And if there is supravalve aortic stenosis and Williams syndrome, these children tend to get coronary artery pathology and ischemia 
and sudden death if cardiac catheterization is performed and therefore we don't do balloon dilatation in these patients or cardiac catheterization. Anesthetic induction also may be very, very tricky in these patients. Hence, if these children require any procedure for dental extraction or for other surgeries, if there is supravalve aortic stenosis and Williams syndrome, anesthetists need to be warned for the dangerous effect of anesthetic and sudden drop in blood pressure, ischemia, arrhythmia, and sudden death. Surgery involved dissecting of the narrowing and putting a conduit with valve sparing surgery. And that is again depending on the severity of narrowing. Balloon dilatation is not possible, even cardiac catheterization, coronary angiogram cannot be performed in these patients due to risk of sudden death. The quality of life in these patients, if the operation led to good result with minimal or no gradient and conduit doesn't deteriorate or degenerate quickly and narrowing doesn't come back or regurgitation doesn't ensue, then they can lead to normal life with long-term survival of close to 70-80%. If narrowing comes back or conduit or the prosthetic valve need replacing, then the long-term longevity may be lower than those patients who did not have any problem. One very rare type is tunnel type, fibromuscular tunnel. Uh, this has the worst long-term outlook and in these patients, surgery is less successful and these patients may require cutting off myocardium quite significantly, which may result in heart block, arrhythmias and poor outlook. And these patients may need heart transplantation if surgery cannot be performed. Well, I think we um, have covered this uh, quite comprehensively. We talked about isolated aortic stenosis, but aortic stenosis, again, may be associated with other lesions. We mentioned about Schoen complex, and the other common association is BSD, ventricular septal defect, in addition to coarctation or mitral stenosis. Very rare association may be AV septal defect or transposition of the great arteries. It's exceedingly rare to see aortic stenosis in transposition. More commonly, we see pulmonary stenosis. So those are the associated problems perhaps we should also consider when we see a child with aortic stenosis. Do you have any questions, Asim, um, that it is relevant to uh, your uh, training? Is it relevant to your listening of this podcast? Yeah, so it was something that I mentioned a lot earlier, actually. And, and it's something that, you know, I read about a lot, but I've never really thought about. But it's, it's stress testing. So we know how we, I know how we stress test adults. Um, do we ever have to stress test children? And if we do, it must be a different process. How would we go about it? It's not different. It's exactly the same scenario. We'll put them on the treadmill. It's the same equipment, but it's, of course, um, specially designed for kids and the protocol is different. So instead of increasing the speed and the angulation, we, we do tend to tend to increase speed slower and also we don't increase tilt quickly. So we call the normal protocol Bruce protocol in adults and in children we call it modified Bruce protocol. But it's still done on the treadmill, but I say at a lower speed and with less incline. So we, we do tend to increase incline rapidly in adults, but slower in children. Uh, an exact monitoring principles, we check blood pressure every three minutes, 
because each stage is three minutes. Um, we check and monitor child's heart rate and ST segments and presence of tachycardia, bradycardia, T wave changes, ST segment changes, and also monitors symptoms. And that's how we stress test these patients. But there is also drug um, stress tests like dobutamine stress tests. So we may use that as well. Um, we don't do it in pediatric practice very commonly. Adults do tend to do it, but we don't do it in pediatric practice unless it's for research purpose. I don't know whether that, do you think this answered your question? Brilliant answer, thank you. Um, is there, I mean, this is just genuine interest now. So is there a younger age limit as to who, because there's got to be a point where the development of the child isn't quite adequate enough to do a stress test like that. And given that we mentioned earlier, aortic stenosis might well present in the pediatric time in the first year of life, which you, where you'd think development almost certainly isn't good enough to try anything like stress testing. Does that mean in that age group you avoid stress tests and find other means by which to check the child? Correct, correct. Well spotted and uh, it's a good point. Stress tests can only be done if the child is able to stay stable on the treadmill or a bike. The younger child that we put on the treadmill is eight years old and they are again um, vary in their ability to remain on the treadmill depending on how mature the child, what the body composure is. Some children may not be big enough to remain stable on the treadmill despite being eight years of age, but eight years of age is good cutoff. If they can't do exercise tests on the treadmill, then we can try bicycle. Again, bicycle is adapted especially to child's height and weight, um, and we can do pedaling stress tests in these patients. Very rarely, we do um, six-minute walk test. So any child can do it. So we mark a long corridor of, say, 500 meters or 100 meters, say 100 meters. And then from the starting point, a nurse, a mom and child, we walk up and down along a straight corridor. And within six minutes, we encourage child to walk as fast as he can or she can and to see what distance can the child take in six minutes. Is it 500 meters, 300 meters, 200 meters? You can also perform ECG on those patients. You can put a halter monitor or 12 ECG, and you can do such tests in those children if necessary, younger children. But for the routine and standard treadmill test, you need to be a mature, well-developed child without any orthopedic problems and you should be able to stay steady on the treadmill which is around eight years of age. Ten years of age is perfect. Children do remarkably well ten years and onwards but in most pediatric cardiology practice eight years considered to be cut off. That's brilliant. Thank you very much Professor Uzu. You're welcome. Any other question? It's burning questions that you may... No, no, I think that was my main one. Brilliant, brilliant. And that's the end of the episode. I wanted to say thank you to Professor Orhan Uzun for joining us this week and for giving us such excellent information about aortic stenosis. It's been really informative and I'm sure he'll be joining us again soon with more information about paediatric cardiology. We're going to be taking a brief break from Dragon Bites episodes over Christmas and the holidays. 
We aim to be back in mid-January, so join us again then. For now, thank you for listening to Driving Bites and enjoy the holidays. Thank you.